0: Hello everybody, this is our second sermon looking at the mission of Jesus. Today we're looking at Matthew chapter 8 verses 18 to 22 and the title is Calling Others to Follow. With his request approved, the BBC News cameraman quickly used his mobile to call the local airport to charter a flight. He was told that a twin-engine plane would be waiting for him. Arriving at the airfield, he spotted a plane warming up outside a hangar. He jumped in with his bag, slammed the door shut and shouted, ''Let's go!'' The pilot taxied out, swung the plane into the wind and took off. Once in the air, the cameraman instructed the pilot, ''Fly over the valley and make low passes so I can get shots of the fires on the moorland.'' ''Why?'' Asked the pilot. Because I'm a cameraman for the BBC, he responded, and I need to get some close up shots. The pilot was strangely silent for a moment. Finally, he stammered So, what you're telling me is you're not my flight instructor. The basis of that joke is a case of mistaken identity. The cameraman mistook the right plane and the learner pilot mistook the cameraman for his instructor. What it shows us is that the way we act towards people is determined by who we think they are. One of the most popular TV dramas of recent years is almost completely based on this premise. In line of duty, there are police officers undercover as criminals and criminals wearing the uniforms of police officers. The undercover officers are letting on secrets about criminal activity because they're deemed to be one of the gang. The undercover criminals get to thwart the efforts of the police because they are given the power deemed appropriate to their fake uniform. The plot of the whole drama is to uncover and unravel the mistaken identities and to start treating people appropriately. The police must get the criminals in jail before they kill the undercover police. As I said, the way we treat people is determined by who we think they are. On Isla, the one mistaken identity you don't want is that of a tourist. Come on admit it. we treat tourists differently to the way we treat locals. We're far less patient with them and at, sadly at times during this pandemic we have even been hostile towards them. There have been several postings on the Isla community page of local residents who just happen to drive camper vans or who have cars with European number plates, stressing very loudly that they are locals. Honest. Don't shoot me off the island, they plead. Don't touch my presence. I'm not breaking the rules to be here. I just live down the street. These recent episodes in the life of our island go to prove again that the way we treat people is determined by who we think they are. It often shouldn't be that way. We should treat all people with kindness and respect. But this is just a fact of human life. Our short passage today focuses on misunderstandings about Jesus. In fact, in just five verses, there are three of them. We get the purpose of Jesus wrong. One disciple gets the person of Jesus wrong. And another disciple gets his priorities in response to Jesus wrong. These three misunderstandings come about because ultimately the true identity of Jesus has been mistaken. As Matthew wrote his gospel, he recorded these little episodes to try and help clear things up. He wanted his readers to be in no doubt as to who Jesus is. For then we shall start behaving towards him properly. I'm going to take each misunderstanding in order before drawing some conclusions that fit in line with our current series. Remember, we are reading Matthew chapters 8 to 10 to try and discover more about the mission of Jesus and how we are to play our part in it. We're going to see today that one of the reasons Jesus came to earth was to call us to follow him. And not just in a half-hearted way, but with everything we've got. So the first misunderstanding we come across when reading this short passage is that we get the purpose of Jesus's time on earth wrong. This comes in verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Our passage today follows directly on from the passage we read last week, where we saw Jesus perform some miraculous healings. He healed a leper. He healed the servant of a centurion, and then he healed Peter's mother-in-law. As a result of all this healing work, crowds have started flocking to Jesus to receive help for themselves. And last week's passage finished with the mention that Jesus was healing many of these people as well. But our reading today began in verse 18 with Jesus leaving the crowds. In fact, he crosses to the complete opposite side of the lake to get away from them. I think it's reasonable to say that this is a fairly drastic social distancing measure. And when we stop and think about it, this is the very opposite of what we might expect Jesus to do. Our world today constantly tells us that fame and limelight is something to be craved, not run away from. We also like to think of Jesus as this very kindly man who genuinely did good by everyone, He would never leave a sick person behind while he sailed off for some peace and quiet, would he? Here then lies one of the big misunderstandings many people make in our world today. Non-believers like to write Jesus off as just a good man who did good things, but who was only relevant to his day. He was just a wandering medic in the days before ambulances. But that was not who Jesus was at all the fact that he walked completely away from clamouring crowds at times shows us that he came with a different purpose entirely. Yes, Jesus did good things. Yes, he did heal people. Who would want to argue about that? But the miraculous healings were never meant to be an end in themselves. Rather, they were signs and symbols of something far deeper. Jesus came to deal with the virus of sin. He came to forgive us for our mistakes. Jesus did not come just to restore physical health. He came with the power to defeat death itself. And Jesus did not come just to heal one or two, but to pave the way for the healing of the entirety of God's creation. Yes, we're going to have to read on in the gospel to see how all that pans out. But let's not get stuck in misunderstanding now. Jesus was not a celebrity preacher who loved the limelight. Jesus was not a first century paramedic. To think those things is to get his purpose entirely wrong. He is far greater than that. And his life and ministry has far greater implications. The second misunderstanding we come across is one where someone gets the person of Jesus wrong. This is found in verses 19 to 20. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and offers to follow him wherever he goes. Now immediately we assume that Jesus is going to be delighted by this offer, but apparently not. Jesus responds to this want-to-be-disciple with a comment so taxing he seemingly puts him off. Again, this is the opposite of what we might have expected Jesus to do. So what is going on here? Where does the misunderstanding lie this time? Well, at the heart of the problem is that the teacher of the law has got caught up in a case of mistaken identity. He too has misunderstood who Jesus really is. And we see this in the way he refers to Jesus simply as teacher. Let me explain. In the ancient Near East, very few people could read or write. Even less spent their days working with written materials or had access to books or scrolls. This teacher of the law would have learnt the rare skill of literacy by becoming the disciple of a rabbi or Jewish teacher. He would have followed the rabbi around until that rabbi had passed on to him everything he knew. A bit like a master with an apprentice. Now the fact that this law teacher in our reading is looking to switch rabbis or move on to another one shows us that he's trying to better himself. He's trying to push his way up the career ladder. We can assume that he's been scouting around for the next master to attach himself to and has just come to the decision that Jesus might be the best on offer. I guess the process this law teacher has gone through is a little bit similar to the way our young people decide which university to go to. This law teacher hopes to eventually graduate from Jesus's classes with a prestigious place of honour among the religious establishment. Perhaps he'll be able to set up his own school or synagogue, maybe even have a few disciples of his own in a few years time. When we know that this is what was likely to have been going through the law teacher's mind, we can begin to see how he has got the person of Jesus all wrong. And so, to open his eyes to this, Jesus is very forthright. This man will not graduate with a synagogue or a school from following his teaching. In fact, followers of Jesus will barely have a roof to put over their own heads. Jesus certainly had no permanent residence of his own to pass on to them. As part of this reply Jesus uses an intriguing expression, an expression that gets right to the heart of what this short passage is all about. He calls himself the son of man. Now just what are we supposed to take away from that statement of identity? On the one hand calling yourself the son of man could just mean that you're a mortal being, a a mere human being just like everyone else. In the old testament the prophet ezekiel was often referred to as son of man and each time that title came it served to highlight his frailty and vulnerability in these terms a son of man as opposed to the son of god which is what the roman emperor called himself at the time implies the ability to suffer so as the teacher of the law heard jesus use this expression about himself he could well have thought that jesus was saying I'm just an ordinary human being. I'm here to serve, here to suffer. You'll get no great riches or academic pedigree from me. No doubt the teacher of the law would have been quite disappointed by that and quickly resumed his search for the next teacher somewhere else. However, for those with the eyes to see and ears to hear, the title Son of Man could mean so much more. To understand this, you need to know a little bit about the Old Testament book of Daniel. In chapter 7 of that book, Daniel had a great vision of the future. A vision so powerful and dramatic that it left him reeling and dumbstruck. In his vision, Daniel foresaw a period of great suffering on earth. Four kingdoms would rise up and harshly oppress God's people. In Daniel's vision, these kingdoms were pictured as four beasts rising out of the sea. The first a lion, the second a bear, the third a leopard and the fourth. A beast so terrifying it defied description. Now, traditionally, those four beasts have been interpreted as the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks and lastly, the Romans. All of which rose up and ruled over Israel, causing great pain and hardship for the Jews. But here is the key bit. In the vision of Daniel 7, after the four beasts have reaped their devastation, Daniel saw this, verses 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Yes, that's right. One like a son of man is brought up before God after his suffering at the hands of the force beast, Rome. He's vindicated for his faith and given power over all the peoples and nations. He's given an everlasting kingdom and all the peoples of the world fall down to worship him. In that moment, the son of man becomes the king of kings. As Christians, we need to know that the son of man was Jesus's favourite title for himself because it really summed up who he was and the purpose of his life. Jesus had come to suffer on behalf of all God's people. He would take the full violence, the full force of the evil kingdoms of this world onto himself and die under its load. But after his death, he would be raised to his father and given an eternal kingdom. The title Son of Man then speaks of Jesus' real humanity and his real divinity, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to glory and his eternal reign. When Jesus uses this title, he is declaring that he is the one all the prophecies of old pointed towards. But, and it's a big but, you would only see this if you took the time to look and reflect. If you impatiently dismiss Jesus as just an ordinary son of man, a first century paramedic or celebrity preacher, you're going to miss out. The teacher of the law in our passage had reduced Jesus to just a wise teacher, the equivalent of one of our university professors. Jesus' harsh words to him in response are a challenge to help push him deeper. For when you come to see Jesus as the Son of Man in Daniel's vision, you're no longer concerned about your future career success or whether you have a nice house. Instead, you begin anticipating the eternal kingdom of God and setting out to give Jesus the honour he is due by following him with your whole life. Remember, who we think a person is determines how we treat them. We must not get the identity of Jesus wrong like the teacher of the Lord did. This then leads us on to the third and last misunderstanding in our passage. This time another potential disciple of Jesus gets his priorities wrong and this is found in verses 21 and 22. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. I wonder what it would take to get you to break your daily routine. I'm such a creature of habit myself. I get up, I run, I shower and I eat breakfast. I do my devotions, I learn my Gaelic, I start work. I do the same thing every single day. If I think I'm going to have a busy day, I just start my routine earlier by getting up earlier. What would it take to stop you doing whatever you usually do? Be it shaving, cleaning your teeth, reading a newspaper, whatever. Probably the one thing for most of us would be a family bereavement. Even I, with my rigid routine, if I heard that a loved one was unwell or near to death, I would throw on some clothes and rush out the door without second thought. Everything else would be ignored. In the ancient Near East, the Jews had a routine. Every day started with the reciting of a prayer, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it goes on. It's a beautiful prayer, which Jews today still say every day and see as the most important thing that they do. Well, in the first century, Jewish rabbis taught that if a family bereavement came along, that was to be seen as even more important than saying the Shema. On that day, you could forget the prayer and rush out to attend the funeral. Now, why have I told you this? Well, when you know that context you can see that what Jesus says to the disciple in these verses is one of the most shocking things he says anywhere in the gospel. Another want-to-be disciple comes up to Jesus and effectively says, I do want to follow you, but just let me bury my father first. He said this, expecting it to be seen as a 100% legitimate excuse. but Jesus is having none of it. He turns and says, follow me. And let the dead bury their own dead. Wow. Just what is going on here? Well, over the years, many commentators have tried to guess. The most common suggestion is that this man is stalling. Maybe his father has not even died yet. Maybe he's in perfectly good health. Maybe this disciple just wants to delay making a commitment, and this was the best excuse he could come up with to stay behind. That sounds very plausible to me, but we have to be honest and say we just don't know if that was the case. The Bible simply doesn't say. Perhaps Matthew didn't want us to try and make excuses for Jesus. Rather, he wanted us just to be hit by the force of what he said. Whatever was going on, Jesus knew what this man needed to hear, and in that moment he needed to hear a challenge about his priorities. Jesus wanted him to see that anything that got in the way of unqualified commitment to him had to be set aside. What we learn from this brief encounter then is that there is an urgency about the decision to follow Jesus. We need to make that decision before it's too late. If we keep putting it off, in the end, we'll never make it. Matthew wants us to hold everything we've learned from these few verses together. The urgency required in our response to Jesus comes from us truly seeing who he is. Jesus is the son of man who one day will rule over all creation. This urgency comes from seeing the purpose of Jesus' life. He's come to forgive sin, defeat death and heal creation. He's come to offer us the essential things we need in life. What possibly could be more important than that? We say again, the way we treat people is determined by who we think they are. When we understand Jesus as the Lord and Saviour of the world, nothing will come in the way of our seeking to worship him and follow him with our lives. So to conclude, this short passage comes as part of our series looking at Matthew chapters 8-10. to We're trying to work out what the mission of Jesus is and how we join in with it today. To help us we're asking three questions of each passage we come across and today those answers are clear. First who is Jesus? He is the Son of Man. Second what was Jesus' mission? He came to suffer on behalf of the world so ultimately he could save it. Save it from sin, death and all our damage. And third how are we to respond? where we are to offer Jesus urgent and costly obedience. We're to follow him in every part of our lives and with everything we have. When we see the true identity of Jesus, we will recognise that he deserves our very best, starting right now.